Hello and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? What is going on on the banks of the Liffey? That's right. We have an Irish guest on today. Very excited to talk to her. Before we do so, I want to make sure you, the listeners, know who the other voices are on this podcast. I am Richard Litauer. I'm your host. Hi, everyone. We also have Leslie Hawthorne. Leslie, how are you doing today? Very well. Thank you, Richard. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's great to have you on. You are a relatively new host, and I'm just always aglow to see you here. Thank you for coming. And Justin Dorfman, my old compadre, como estas? Como estas, you too? Yep, I'm also good. All right, that is Justin. All right, so those are our hosts today, and our guest is the illustrious and awesome Claire Dillon. Claire, it is so good to have you on. I don't know why it took this long to have you on. I'm just really excited for our conversation today. We get to dive into all the good stuff. How are you doing today? I am doing incredibly well. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for coming. All right. For those of you who don't know, Claire Dillon is a boss. She is a community organizer at Oslo Plus Plus, which is where we both worked to try to figure out how do we get open source program offices in all the things. She is also the co-founder of the Open Ireland Network, which is a community of people talking about open source in Ireland. We'll get to more details with that soon. Don't worry. You will be able to hear more about it. Also, she is the ED of Inner Source Commons. Inner Source Commons is, of course, the institution dedicated towards understanding how we can use open source practices inside of large corporations to improve how things go. I'm sure there's something else that I just missaid, but I'm really excited to get into what that means for her. Claire, you have a long history in open source. Those are three things we could dedicate an entire podcast to just a facet of. Why don't we actually start with your background story? How did you get into open source in the first place? Yeah, it's an interesting one because I wouldn't actually say that I have a long history in open source. I have probably, relatively speaking, a relatively short history in open source. My own background is with working with developers. I've always been working with developers for a long time here in Ireland. I was part of the developer evangelism group in Microsoft Ireland. I headed up that team for the Microsoft Ireland office for many years. And when I was at Microsoft, I kind of came on the journey of enlightenment that they themselves came on with open source. So believe it or not, I remember when I was there, when Steve Ballmer had that awful comment about open source being a cancer, and I kind of followed their entire journey, you know, where they came to understand the power of open source. And at the end, sure, we were buying little penguins with Microsoft Heart open source on them and things like that. But I have to be honest, it wasn't until I left Microsoft that I really kind of got involved or began to actually meet people actively involved in the open source community. And I feel very lucky to have had that chance back in 2018. So I joined an Irish company called Nearform. They're a custom software development house, and they were very involved in the Node.js community. They were big contributors to that community. And they were the first people I met who were involved if I can say commercially in open source. So they understood the value of how being contributors in the open source community could have value to their business. And it was at that company that I met Denise Cooper, who is, of course, a long-term practitioner in open source and the open source Steve in that respect. And she introduced me not only to open source culture and the communities and how it all works, but also to this concept of inner source. The idea that you actually help corporate developers use practices, open source methods and practices within the confines of firewall to create proprietary code in order to 
be ready to contribute to open source projects, but in essence, also just to do software development in a better way. So when I learned about that as a practice, I realized that for me, it hit all my sweet spots. It spoke to the kind of things I was used to engaging with, which would be corporate developers. But it also helped me learn lots more about the amazing area of open source communities, how they work, how open source methods and practices work. I've always been fascinated by how collaboration works. And it struck me that open source was kind of providing this way of working that could be so valuable to so many people, they just didn't know about it. So for me, it was a moment where I was thinking, this is it. This is it for me. I'm all in now. Tell me how you got involved with InnerSource Commons with Denise Cooper. Yeah. So with InnerSource Commons, that was a community that Denise had founded in 2015. So when I was working with her in Nearform, we were involved in launching their InnerSource practices. So at that point in time, it was part of my role to go along to the community summits, the InnerSource Commons summits. And I had attended two of those and I loved the community. So for me, it was partly to do with loving the concepts and the methods, but the InnerSource Commons community themselves are just a fantastic group of people. And I know there are loads of them out there, but you meet a group of people that you just want to continue working with. That's always a great thing. So when I left Nearform or stopped, my contract finished in 2019, I was still involved in InnerSource Commons. And at that point, the pandemic, of course, was just about to hit. And in early 2020, InnerSource Commons had figured out that they needed to move everything online. They had primarily only been meeting up in person before that. And they needed to make sure that they had a way of staying engaged with the community when it came to the lockdown and all the horrible consequences of that. So I started working with them at that point in time to actually bring their summits online, a lot of their activities, get more involved in the virtual world. And so I was working with them since then. And they formally incorporated as a nonprofit, a 501c3, in 2021. And at that point in time, I got elected as their executive director. So that was my journey with them. It's not often you get to say the good things about COVID are. But for me, one of the great things about COVID has been that that gave me that opportunity. And I think it was a fantastic outcome for what could have been a really horrible time to meet this new community and to be able to... I suppose, get engaged with that work over that time period. COVID was also useful for me in those regards, but I should rather say not COVID, but just the lockdown and the clarity that came with being in yeah. your house. I mean, like, well, what do I want to do with my time? When we talk about InnerSource Commons and the community, can you tell me how many people are active members? How many people are separate members since it's a 501c3? How big is the budget? So InnerSource Commons, I mean, the organization over its lifetime, I think it's had about 2000 people active on their communications channels and things like that. But of course, like many of these communities, has fewer people active at any given time. We typically have, you know, say about a couple of hundred people who'd come to our summits. We have regular community calls where we get about 40 to 50 people. We have active working groups in the areas of learning paths, patterns, the marketing working group. There's a new one just started up for ISPOs or inner source program offices. So we have a really core active community of about, say, 50 people contributing over various different initiatives. It is a member-owned organization and membership cannot be purchased, but it is earned. So in that context, I think we have about 25 members who have been elected as members by other members. And those folks have been granted membership because of their consistent contributions to the commons over time. So that's how it's all set up. We also are funded by our partners and community supporters. So we have approximately nine companies who fund us to help support the organization. 
So you talked about members and you talked about donating to the commons or giving to the commons. Tough question. Inner source is about taking open source practices and being able to use them within teams at large corporations. Is it about more than that? And the, I want to ask this question while noting that inner source commons seems to me to be the exact opposite of something like a GPL license, which is saying this can't be used by any corporation. This is much more about like, no, use open source inside companies. That's totally cool. And let's figure out how that works. What am I missing? Yeah, it's interesting because it's not so much about using open source inside of the companies, though many of the companies who are participating in inner source commons are using open source. It's more about the methods and practices. Really, this is about the idea that many of the large organizations, and I should say it's not just large organizations. We have many small organizations who face similar challenges. But in many corporations, I should say, development practices have kind of arranged themselves around silos, usually aligned to organizational structures. So you may have various different divisions or various different teams, each of which are working on their own projects or applications. And they find it hard to actually work across these organizational boundaries. They don't know how to do it in an effective way. Open source methods and practices kind of have that figured out. I mean, they've made that work where no one's necessarily being paid for anything. You can't enforce anything on individuals that are working in the open source world. When you take that internally into companies, it really is about providing that infrastructure and methods and processes that help people understand how to collaborate if they're not being paid by the person who has created the code in the first place. So it helps actually break down and break through a lot of bureaucratic blockers to collaboration that might be happening within organizations. And what's really interesting is that many of the original founders of InnerSource Commons were motivated by the idea of creating a whole new set of people who were able and willing to collaborate in the open source community so that they had that experience within their jobs and therefore would be more likely and able to contribute either within their jobs or in their own private time to the open source community. But what's really interesting is that in the last number of years, and I think probably also potentially because of the consequences of lockdown, there are more and more organizations now who have distributed teams, who have folks that are actually working from home, and they need to be able to enable that kind of collaboration, regardless of whether or not they're actually on their way to open source. So there are some organizations in the commons, for example, Comcast, who have actively said that they use inner source as a step on the path to open source. They make their teams, if they want to open source a project, they make them successfully inner source it first to prove that they have the wherewithal to be able to support pull requests and be able to build a contributing community around their code. And they use that as a kind of a internal readiness step before they make it open source. But there are many other organizations, like, say, for example, Santander Bank, who have come to InnerSource purely as a way to actually facilitate that collaboration across silos. So they're into code reuse. They're into making this collaboration happen, regardless of where you're sitting, and so that you're not constrained by whatever organizational boundaries may be put in place. It's an interesting set of motivations. It can be quite broad. Claire, have you found in your experience that organizations that come to InnerSource who may not have any experience with open source are more disposed to community engagement or doing code development outside of the firewall after they get that experience with InnerSource? Well, one of the interesting things about the commons is that we are an open source community. So all of our assets are actually available on GitHub and we all can collaborate there. So it's kind of a, I'd call it sneaky if I thought it was some sort of uh, <laughs> nefarious 
It's a cool way to actually get people practicing open source for the first time sometimes, because to participate in the commons and to contribute to the materials, you have to actually do open source and in terms of actually collaboration with the community. So those folks that do come to the commons, if they're contributing to the inner source commons, well, then they are because they're contributing to our project. Do they go on to contribute to other projects? We have seen people who, and again, within organizations who may have an open source policy where they're training people to get ready for open source participation. We have seen folks that have come through their inner source training or education programs who are then ready and then are set tasks within their organization to actually go and contribute to open source projects or to participate in those projects. I don't have any data as to whether or not individuals who have been experiencing inner source are then going off in their spare time to do open source, but we'd like to think they are. Yeah, I think one of the things that I find most interesting is, I guess there's sort of two minds about the value of the inner source as a model for those of us who may have grown up as open source purists and think that all development must be done in the open from day one. And also this notion of meeting people where they are and bringing them along because the more in my own work, as I'm talking to folks in industries that are not cloud native application development jobs, just this notion of what is open source and why is it valuable to me and my business is so nascent in their understanding. And frankly, there are a lot of organizations that are afraid to do all of their development work in the open for various reasons. And this seems to be a methodology that they can embrace and make themselves more sophisticated, more collaborative, more agile as part of that. Yeah. Some people are, as you say, fearful of doing it and understand the value, but maybe are unsure about how to do that in a way that is going to be productive for their company, right? So there is that idea of folks that have already been won over, but just want to know how and want to do that in a safe space. But there are always going to be organizations who never go there, whose business models are built on proprietary software business models and have no strategy to start open sourcing. Now, you can argue as to whether or not that is a correct strategy, but the fact of the matter is it's there and there are organizations like that. And I think from my perspective, you don't want to block the individuals working in those companies from working in a better way. So wouldn't it be great that even if you are working on your day job in that kind of company, you still get to work in an open collaborative way behind that firewall? Like one of the interesting things that's emerged recently are actual collaborations across organizational boundaries. So we've had some folks in the commons talk, like say, for example, for government organizations who talk about various different constraints. Maybe there might be security concerns or maybe there might be ideas about the fact that they need to create walled garden where they do collaborations between two organizations. Maybe or maybe not that becomes open source in the long term. But either way, they have that constraint in place and they still want to be able to do that open collaboration. So that's another scenario where sometimes inner source can be useful. I heard one person recently describe the idea, which I really like, of enabling a rolling wall of openness. I take to that because it's the kind of idea that if you're doing inner source and you have a rolling wall of openness, it means that over time, an organization can roll that wall closer to being fully open, breaking it down altogether. But it gives them that feeling of being able to, I suppose, have choice in that process in terms of what gets opened, when and how. And I think that's one of the main things that InnerSource then enables. Because if you do start working with InnerSource in the beginning, then it's not such a leap. There's no big chasm to start saying, okay, we're set up to do this. The step from we're really good inner sourcers, <laughs> inner sorcerers, we're doing this really well. The step between that and saying, now let's make it an open source project is much, much smaller than the idea mm -hmm. of a project that's been built 
where no one knows what a PO or a pull request is. So you keep using this interesting word, which you say the commons, which I assume you're referring to inner source commons when you say that. Yes, I am. Okay. Yeah. I'm wondering what you think about the long-term implications for the health of the open source ecosystem that so many people are going through corporate inner source courses, trainings, backgrounds, whether they're learning how to do this in their company and whether that's going to affect how the ecosystem at large will continue to function. And I'm also curious whether you've noticed that because people get better at, at inner source comments, they end up not just contributing like at night, we already covered that, but straight out, like, do you think that helps sustain open source as a whole by allowing corporations to get involved in open source in some way? Or do you think the inner source is just a different thing? It's just something else that helps out companies work better. It's a management practice or is it related? I think it's very related. So for me, when we hear about the challenges that organizations have and the blockers they break down in order to be able to do inner source, those blockers, if they're not broken down through inner source, are harder to break down, I think, sometimes in the context of, of trying to justify a move to open source. Back to your original question. Do I think it's going to have a positive impact on the long-term sustainability of open source? I do, because I think it helps more developers work in an open way understand the processes, and they have a better chance of being able to engage successfully and provide contributions to the broader open source community if they're skilled in doing inner source. And that's everything from being familiar with the processes to alts and the tools, but also just this idea that for many corporate developers, the notion of suggesting a change or making a fix or scratching your own itch is like beaten out of them in some corporations, because the whole idea is you will work on these job items that I have put on the board for you that you are being paid to do. And I will measure every minute of your time. And if you're not working on this project that I'm paying you for, you're not doing your job. Now, the difference between that kind of culture and a culture where it's appreciated that projects you may have a dependency on, that it's a good thing that you have an ability to make positive changes and impact projects you have a dependency on. Now, whether or not those projects are internal to your company or external to your company, in some respects, I mean, depending on your policy as an organization, that's kind of immaterial. Once you're able to start thinking, I am allowed to, I am en enabled to make changes to something that's not in my direct control or in my boss's direct control, that's a huge cultural shift. And once it happens for InnerSource, again, it's a much, much smaller step to say, well, I mean, that particular dependency is not within our organization, but it's as important as the one that the team B over there is working on. So why can't I now go and make changes to that or make fixes to that project because it has a positive impact on my team? Once they make that shift, that cultural shift, and they're enabled to do it, then that has a much better chance of having a broader positive impact on the broader ecosystem, open source ecosystem, in my mind. On the Inner Source Commons website, you have... English and you have Japanese. How active is the people who speak Japanese into InnerSource? I'm so glad you saw that, Justin. We are so proud of our community and in particular, the Japanese community in the last little while have done Trojan work to actually internationalize our website and have translated so much of the website and the content over just the last few months. So this has been one of the amazing stories about InnerSource Commons in the last number of years is the work that's been going on to translate all the content, the learning path materials, the articles. But the Japanese community in the last few months has kind of taken that to the next level, led by the marvelous Yuki Hatatori, 
who was one of our outstanding contributors this year, but he has pulled together a number of folks in Japan who, I mean, he identified the fact that Japanese culture meant that they were less likely to engage with English content and therefore pulled people together and in a very short time managed to internationalize our website and then do all the translations with the help of his great community over there. So that's been fantastic. And it's now enabled the next generation of other local communities to start the same work. So we have a group of folks now from France who are starting the broader work on the website from French. I will say, though, that even before the work from Japan and the Japanese community, we've had a number of different translations of things like our learning path content. So I think we had German and French and Italian and Portuguese. I think there's about seven different languages which have been, again, all done by the community. Just Japan took a whole step further now that the website has been done as well. So it's just fantastic to see that internationalization of the entire community. Yeah, that's awesome. Can't think about Japanese without thinking about Ana Jimenez, who we've also had on the podcast. Tell me about Intersource Commons' relationship to the to-do group, because I know they also have a massive influence on corporate involvement in open source. Can you talk a bit about that? Delighted to. I mean, Anna is a fantastic community participant over at Intersource Commons as well. And we're always delighted to have her come and participate in our community over there. So we see a lot, I suppose, crossover between folks who might work in open source program offices and inner source programs. Now, we sometimes have folks who are rolling out inner source programs from open source program offices or OSPOs. And then sometimes we have folks who are creating inner source program offices, who, which are often modeled on open source program offices. But we do look to to do collaborations where we can. So certainly we've had folks from Intersource Commons speak at Ospology events. In fact, planning to go to one shortly now over in Amsterdam myself for the next in-person one that's happening there at the end of January. So there's a lot of kind of crossover contributions in terms of sharing knowledge from that perspective. So yeah, so there's great collaboration happening there. And I, in fact, have been involved and has been at Intersource Summits from even before she joined the Linux Foundation. So it's great to have someone who understands the whole practice and method as well, who's there to work with. Yeah, she's wonderful. I should mention that the link to her podcast is on the website, as well as link to Denise's Cooper podcast. I'm not sure we mentioned that we had on here before. I've had the honor of working with Claire in several contexts, including the Intersource Commons context, but in particular, seeing the work that she's done as co-founder of the Open Ireland Network. And Claire, I wonder if you'd like to talk to us about that as well as I know the Open Ireland Network just produced a skills report along with the Irish government. So can you give us an overview of the research and your findings? So this is a really interesting one. I mentioned before about the fact that I suppose my background isn't the same as some of the folks who would have come into open source. I'm not a developer. I didn't start by scratching my own itch in that respect. It was actually coming at it from this idea of process and collaboration and looking at and finding out along the way about the amazing potential of open source to have economic impact, to have social impact. Like it blew my mind when I started thinking about that. And I suppose I hadn't thought about that before interacting with open source communities. And along the way, I was talking to a lot of folks in Europe and in the US. And some people would say, well, what's happening in Ireland? And I had to kind of scratch my chin and kind of go, well, actually, I don't know what's happening in Ireland around open source. Maybe I should go ask. And so I went back to some of my network that I knew from the developer scene in Ireland and I started saying, you know, so who's doing open source? And it turned out loads of people were. There were people who were involved in various different projects. They knew of people who were heavily involved in particular technical projects. What I found interesting was that they didn't know each other. Now, if they were involved in the same technical project, they'd been at meetups and they knew each other. 
But say you might have someone who's credibly influential in the Drupal community. And then you have someone over here who's doing stuff and embedded something else. And they didn't know each other. They didn't know they were both sitting in Ireland. They didn't know they might live down the road from each other. And more importantly, organizations who are heavily dependent on open source or involved in the community, they didn't talk about it in Ireland. And I think that's partially because they didn't get any benefit from doing that. There wasn't this culture in Ireland to say, hey, look at me, I'm so great because we're contributing to the open source community. No one gave you credit for that. But it turned out there were a lot of dependencies there. There was a lot of people getting a lot of value there. And so one of the things that I wanted to do co-founding Open Ireland Network with Denise, who's based in Ireland now and others, was basically to raise awareness of the value of open source from an economic and social impact, from a personal purpose impact, all these great things that open source gives folks. I want to raise that awareness because I think there were a lot of people in Ireland who were stuck in a perception that may have come from, say, 20 years ago, where they were thinking, Asher, it's only for passion projects and it's only little bits of software that doesn't have any impact and people building it in their bedrooms and why would I get involved? So you want to shift the perception from that to understand the important role that open source plays now in the broader software ecosystem and how it's essential to the future of the entire ecosystem and the entire industry. And so let people understand how that's shifted to let them understand the importance of I suppose, professionally engaging with open source, both in terms of their consumption and their contribution back, the responsibility around that, to think about their potential social impact, to think about economic impact of just getting involved. All of these things, I wanted to raise the awareness of that. So that was one of the goals. But the second one was that as soon as I started talking to people about that, they all started saying, and we can't find the people. We can't find people to work on this in Ireland. We have to go abroad. And that's always a red flag to anyone in Ireland because the whole skills agenda for the tech industry is hugely important on so many levels. So as soon as that flag was raised, I got in contact with some of the agencies in Ireland who were involved in skills development for the tech industry. And they started getting really interested when they started seeing the stats around how many big tech companies, how many big companies worldwide were getting involved in this. And so they supported the creation of the skills report that you mentioned, Leslie. And it was a really fantastic report to be able to I suppose, give that context to organizations who may not be familiar with open source about why it's important, how it works, and then to talk about the kinds of skills that would be great if we could help support in Ireland. And what was really interesting for me when I was involved in this was that I was expecting all the technical skills. Like we've heard a lot about the skills gap around the open source community. We need people who are able to develop in an open source way and collaboratively build code. We know of all those skills. They've been talked about a lot. But what was really fascinating to me was there was almost equal emphasis in the folks that responded to the survey about the non-technical skills. So where are the people in sales and marketing who understand this ecosystem? Where are the people in legal professions who understand the legal agreements necessary, how you do tech translation from research projects to commercial entities? What's a CLA? I mean, all of these. So how do we build people who are not developers, how do we build the skills within those communities to actually be successful in this ecosystem? Particularly things like in sales and marketing. We'd hear from people who are technical themselves saying, I have to do it all because I can't actually find anyone with a marketing background who knows enough about the ecosystem to actually engage effectively. 
So where are the people? How do we build a skill? So that's what the report's about. And it has some recommendations that we're hoping now that the various different agencies in Ireland will pick up and look at actually making happen. We're looking in Ireland that there are many agencies who are funded by the government to help build skills the industry needs. So now that we're on the agenda, we're hoping the next step is we start figuring out how to make that happen. In terms of what the Open Ireland Network is doing, connecting all these folks together, is there any specific intent to support the skills agenda in Ireland with more open source work? Or is that something that's already perhaps something that you can support that's underway within Ireland? That's a personal passion of mine is getting folks economic mobility through open source and inner source. So one of the things that I have noted again and again throughout my journey as a businesswoman and someone who's been involved in the open source community is the great power for open source and businesses based around open source to not only be engines of innovation for large corporations, but also to provide reasonable and generous livelihoods to folks who are in small and medium enterprises and who may in fact have their own small consulting house or be that marketer who understands open source at a small development firm. And I'm wondering if that's part of the Irish government plans for economic development in Ireland, if that's something that the Open Ireland Network is encouraging, or if you've seen sort of any developments in that regard. Well, it's definitely something that the Open Ireland Network are keen on. So in the discussions that we've had so far, there has been a lot of discussion around the potential for small Indigenous businesses to be formed on the back of open source projects and how investment in open source projects, particularly, say, for example, in research centres and things like that. So once you have an increase in innovation happening in the open, it gives much more opportunities for small Indigenous companies to build on the back of that. And I think one of the most interesting areas that folks are now beginning to be aware of is that it's not just the technology that it gives you a kind of a leapfrog in, but also market access. So both in terms of being able to understand how to engage with communities who are now dependent on this kind of innovation or project. So certainly when I was talking to some of the industry development agencies in Ireland, the idea that there are industry vertical foundations focusing on innovation in particular areas was of huge interest to them. And I was pointing out this idea of smaller companies who are now location independent in the open source world can literally get access to decision makers, senior technical people in very large organizations, can build personal relationships with them, can prove their technical competency and can actually start working with them in a way that they almost then become the obvious choice for partnerships later down the line. Now, that's an opportunity that doesn't exist for small Irish companies on the West Coast of Ireland in the proprietary world, because typically you have to be co-located or located close to your strategic clients. In the open source world, those boundaries are broken down. The opportunities then become limitless in terms of what remote companies or companies based in remote places um, in Ireland, what opportunities are made available to them. And speaking of remote, in the other sense, there's an organization that came out of Ireland promoting the idea of remote working. And they too are delighted with this idea that open source contributions, open source companies can often be remote first because it doesn't really matter where you're sitting. And there is no idea of you have to, I don't know, have six people that eat a pizza in a room together. That's necessary to build software that myth is busted. And it means that folks can live in remote areas of Ireland. And that fits very nicely with our regional development plan. So for all those reasons, from economic perspective, the whole idea about open source is beginning to gain traction in Ireland. And we're hoping that it will lead to 
potentially government investment in making that a reality through skills and maybe other incentives, hopefully in the future. I'm really curious if you have any thoughts on the long-term implications of nationalistic approaches towards open source markets. Obviously, you've been doing a lot of work for Ireland, which is great. That's good. You're Irish. Makes sense. And then, yes, there are small companies there that would like to be able to make money and have access to larger markets. And it would be great to have more people in remote areas be able to afford to live there. Urban drain really sucks. But I'm wondering, will this have to be duplicated in every single country and region around the world? Is there going to be an open Basque region? Is there going to be an open everything else? I mean, we've already seen Oska go leaps and bounds. We've seen the Japanese community go leaps and bounds. It seems to me like duplicated effort. And I'm wondering if there's other ways to think about access to markets, approaching funding, skill sharing, et cetera, raising people up into the middle class and or higher. And if it's just a win-all situation for everyone. I'm trying to think of negatives. I can't. I'm yeah. just really curious. I think it's interesting. I mean, like a country the size of Ireland, it's funny because you talk about open source in Ireland and there is everything I just said, which is the opportunity for Irish people or people based in Ireland, I should say. So there's opportunities for people based in Ireland. And that's really talking about how to mitigate against the fact that we are not in the tech centers. We're not in Silicon Valley. Folks, you know, based there find it harder than maybe people based in the Valley to maybe work for in a particular niche area in technology or whatever. That's not entirely true, Claire. There are a ton of massive companies in Dublin and Apple's based in Ireland. There are. Maybe what I was talking about was less in terms of the major urban centers, as you were saying. And indeed, it's just about broadening the set of opportunities, is my point, to folks that that it's location agnostic. Let's put it that way. But in the same way, I think that makes it easier for people to partner with other people and to have staff that are globally distributed or to work at companies that are based elsewhere. I mean, the Irish love that. To your point, there's loads of Irish people who are working for American companies. There's loads of people who want to work for other companies that happen to be based in different places. Does this allow them to do that in a better way? Yes. Does it allow them to work with people who may be coming from other places where they currently couldn't recruit from or partner with? Because if it involves like flying them over on a regular basis, and that mightn't be practical, but could they then have a distributed team? Anyone who's, say, interested in a niche technology area, could they build a distributed team with the best experts around the world in that particular technology, no matter where they sit, whether it be Africa or Europe or the US? Yes, this is what this allows you to do. I do think that this kind of approach, wherever it is, it just basically breaks down that nationalistic wall of like any input is input into the system. It's not input into a nationalistic effort, if you get my gist. Because if you're enabling people to do open source in any nation, it enables collaboration across nations. I kind of want to point out that is actually another of the benefits that places like Ireland can leverage. Ireland is a small country. We do not have budget sometimes, the same size budget as, say, the US does or some of the bigger European nations to build things. So in many respects, it's the perfect solution for Ireland to be collaborating with other nations or other organizations to be able to push ahead their contribution to whatever might be happening in the global technology landscape. So I think that in many respects, the investment by national agencies in the open source ecosystem has a benefit for the broader open source ecosystem. To the point where, for example, again, if you think about skills programs, I'm certainly hoping that Ireland will start to invest more in building skills in Ireland. One would hope and one would assume that if they're doing that, they're doing that by creating resources that are available to everyone in the world. It just happens to be invested in Ireland. 
wouldn't it be great if everyone's doing the same thing? And if that's the case, then maybe what is required is some sort of helping people find that. And maybe we need to collaborate across national borders even to create it. But they're the kinds of really interesting problems that we need to start solving for because governments are very used to funding things for themselves. But once you start realizing in the same way as inner source gets people used to kind of collaborating across organizational artificial constructs, maybe national investment can get to the point where they understand how to invest in collaborative efforts that span national boundaries and how to govern and sustain that in the long term. Well, I'm all for that. I think we should get, oh, time's wrapping up. So cool. Claire, it's been really good to have you on. We could keep talking forever. At times, I believe we have. But for now, I think we do need to wrap up this podcast. Where can people read this report? They can read that at openirelandnetwork.com. Awesome. And you can reach Intersource Commons at intersourcecommons.org. Where can people follow you and your thinking in particular on the interwebs? I'm mostly active on LinkedIn. You'll find me at Claire Dillon, no I-C-L-A-R-E, Dillon on LinkedIn. I do have a Twitter account, but I don't tweet. I have more follow. So really LinkedIn is where I'm most active. Awesome. Claire, this is excellent. I'm really excited to see how Open Ireland has grown. I hope it continues to do so. And I hope that Intersource Commons continues to pump more life into the open source ecosystem, which you say it's doing. So hooray. At some point, we're going to have to talk about Oslo Plus Plus. I realize we still haven't really done that, but that is okay. If you're curious listeners, well, there's a ton of different podcasts that mention it, which we've had on this program. And we'll try to have a few more. For now, Claire, thank you so much. That was great. But don't leave yet. It's Spotlight. Spotlight is a part of the show where I talk in a fake accent where we talk about people, projects, or programs which have helped us out in our careers, which we think just need a little light put on them. So as traditional, Justin Dorfman, what is your spotlight today? I'm going to say Ghost. I had to move my newsletter to Ghost, and Ghost is really great. Ghost.org. Awesome. Thank you very much. Leslie Hawthorne. I did just want to let folks know who are they're interested in this area that the digital public goods charter has been published and you can find that at the digital public goods charter.org and it is dpg charter.org and this is an excellent opportunity to learn more about the concept of digital public goods and to see if your organization is interested in signing on to the pledge to support the notion of digital public goods with a preference for open source software in order to aid folks all across the world who need access to resources that some of us may have access to more easily. So check out dpgcharter.org and follow the work from that site. Sweet. Thank you. I'm going to spotlight the National Portrait Gallery in Dublin. I went there when I was 17 and I've had a painting from there displayed in every single room I have lived in, which is many rooms since then. And I was able to go there when I was at OSPO con last september in dublin which was lovely and it's free so if you're ever around go to the national portrait gallery and please sponsor your local museums even if they do cost some money they are the best claire dillon so i want to spotlight a wonderful lady called sue borchert who's a research artist based in baltimore i met her in the wardley mapping group conversations But she has the most amazing animation series that she's created to help explain things like adaptive culture and cultural evolution. She used to work at the Learning Innovation Lab at Harvard, and they are the most 
amazing videos and I would totally recommend folks to check that out. I think it's suewarshirt.com, but I too will confirm the link in the show notes. Excellent. And with that, Claire, thank you so much. Listeners, we hope you have enjoyed this podcast. If you have enjoyed this podcast, do remember to like us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are sold or made. If you have any thoughts about it, please let us know. Email us at podcast.sustainoss.org. We are curious about your thoughts, invectives, hatreds, or whatever you want to do. Discussions. If you have more discussions you want to share with other people, please go to discourse.sustainoss.org, where we will be happy to talk about things. There will be a thread for this episode where Claire will probably check it. If not, you can always reach Claire on all of the slacks. She has in all of them. The Open Clash Slack is particularly good, and we also have a sustain channel there if you want to jump in and talk about sustaining open source things. If you have any suggestions for guests for this program, do send them along. Again, that's podcast.sustainoss.org. You can also go to podcast.sustainoss.org to actually see the show notes, which have been heretofore pre-mentioned. This has been your national disclaimer. Blah, 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 blah. Always take water. Thank you so much, Claire. That was really great. And have a wonderful day.